Research Briefs podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Streveler, coming to you from the School of Engineering Education at Purdue University. The goal of Research Briefs is to expand the boundaries of engineering education research. In these podcasts, we'll speak to researchers about new theories, new methods, and new findings in engineering education research. My guest today on Research Briefs is Dr. James Huff. James is an assistant professor of engineering education at Harding University and teaches courses in design. In the context of his research lab, which is called Beyond Professional Identity, or BPI, James mentors undergraduate students, doctoral students, and academic professionals in using interpretative phenomena phenomenological analysis. I knew I was going to mess up on that. Um, And this is unfortunate because this is the whole thing we're going to talk to James about today. But luckily, we can call interpretative phenomenological analysis IPA. And he uses it as a qualitative research method. His investigations are centered on unpacking the individual lived experiences of identity in professional contexts, and he is currently a PI for an NSF-funded study on shame in the context of engineering, which I'm hoping he'll talk a bit about today. Um, Those of you who are regular listeners to Research Briefs may remember that James was also uh, a guest on Episode 7, which was the ASWE live interviews with E&E alumni, and at that time we said, Tell us a little bit about IPA and come back and we'll have a whole podcast on it. And that's what we're doing today. So James, welcome to Research Briefs. I'm so pleased you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm a big fan of the show myself. Oh, well, thank you. I'm a big fan of you. So we can <laughs> we can be fans together here. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To provide a bit of introduction to listeners, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into engineering education research? Sure. Um, I had, uh, like like many who are on your show, I had begun my trajectory in an engineering discipline. I was in electrical and computer engineering. Graduated with a bachelor's in computer engineering at Harding, the the place I'm at now, and pursued my master's in electrical and computer engineering at Purdue. Um, I was a member of the Robot Vision Lab, and while I was doing my master's, I worked for a human simulation software company as well. So a lot of my interests were in this space of artificial intelligence. Um, I mentioned that because even from the very beginning of my trajectory, um, I had this uh, just this fascination and drive to understand how individuals um, think, how they behave, and, and what motivates them. And that was even carrying through in a lot of my uh, electrical and computer engineering work at the master's level and, and in my job at a human simulation software company. And, and those were the things I would get very excited about. Um, I was not very excited about uh, coding, although many are, and I'm very enthusiastic that they are excited about it. That just didn't characterize me. Um, 
after I went, as I was completing my master's, I took an academic position as an instructor at Harding University um, in teaching and lecturing and uh, engineering coursework. Um, that position was taken with the understanding that I would take an academic sabbatical and pursue a PhD. And I, as I was kind of thinking of what I wanted to study, I became very fascinated with the problems that I was living in uh, rather than the problems that were contained within a computer engineering discipline. And that is uh, the students' experiences in the courses, um, how they understood who they were in the context of becoming engineers. And that was really uh, my pathway into pursuing a PhD at Purdue in engineering education research. Uh, what initially motivated me was this idea of how um, how individuals in this professional context live out their holistic sense of identity. I didn't even quite have that language, but mm-hmm. what I was really at the very beginning where I saw that is in something that is a passion of mine even today, and that's a big part of my teaching profile is in service learning and engineers living out um, their profession in community service. And that was very appealing to me. I came to Purdue and worked uh, very gratefully for three years with the EPICS, the Engineering Projects and Community Service Program. Um, But that was a launch of something, getting at something deeper than the context that I was interested in. And that is, who are these individuals? I came to have the language of identity and how do I study this? How how do I understand who these individuals are? And that, that's really how I got into and launched my research career in engineering education research. So um, what we've specifically asked you to speak about is the and I'm going to say it really slowly so I don't mess it up. It's so embarrassing because I love this method and, and I should be able to say it, but oh. it's a lot of syllables. It really is. <laughs> it takes some practice. <laughs> it does. Interpretative phenomenological analysis, IPA. Yes. So how did you begin using IPA? Can you first of all tell us what that is? Absolutely. Yes. So interpretative phenomenological analysis is what we will refer to from this point forward as IPA. Mm -hmm. Um, That is a research method and really, uh, and I would say really a research mindset undergirding the procedures that is concerned as Jonathan Smith, the founder of IPA, uh, would say is concerned with the detailed examination of personal lived experience, how individuals make sense of that experience, how they um, create meaning of those experiences. It's anchored in this idea that um, there's a view of a person as someone who is embedded and connected to the world around them through forms of language, through um, broader contexts. And In their everyday lived experience, there's some rich patterns that bear significance to 
understanding. And so IPA is a research, a qualitative research methodology uh, located in a psychological tradition to really unpack what those experiences are and how those individual experiences integrate, challenge, and mesh with broader theoretical ways of framing those experiences. So I notice you you uh, use the word individual a lot. Why are you pointing that out particularly and emphasizing that? That's a good question. That's an excellent question. So um, I, I probably, I do that for two reasons that... One is just in general with education research, we're often oriented to understand um, events that are really collectively understood, um, that are that live in sort of this sociocultural space that's kind of out there beyond a person. And a lot of times that's really what we're oriented to understand in the context of education research. So in my work, I make a distinction that I am unabashedly looking at the personal lived experience of individuals. And and that is the focal point of my analysis, Um, not necessarily their perspective of a thing, a teaching intervention uh, project, a broader experience of inclusion. I'm looking at them convictedly. And so that's, that's a big reason why I emphasize individual. Um, And, you might notice that that could be a contrast to what is often investigated in phenomenological studies. So by saying interpretative phenomenological analysis, we're distinguishing between a more descriptive version of phenomenology that is concerned with looking, um, really, it, it, it comes from, there's a lot of similarities and a lot of alignment in that all phenomenology is really valuing the lived world, uh, what often called the life world of the, of an individual person where descriptive phenomenology has aims that are distinct is they're looking at something beneath the surface, so to speak. Uh, It's called the eidetic structure that is really the constituent parts of that experience, not necessarily connected to a person. In interpretative phenomenological analysis, uh, in IPA, um, what we are really oriented to do is see how that experience is connected to that person in their relationship with something about the world around them. Um, Now, that sounds very philosophical, and and it's because the method itself is very much grounded in philosophical understandings of phenomenology through uh, uh, people like Edwin Husserl, Martin Heidegger. Um, And and it really um, is oriented, IPA is really oriented around the understandings of people like Heidegger and Sartre that uh, unpack phenomenology as things that are very much idiosyncratic to the the individuals of experience. Um, If that sounds daunting, Mm-hmm. Uh, it does, yes. And I think it does. I mean, I think it does, especially to people who are starting out with a research method and, and way of understanding research. Um, I will say one of the things that surprised me as I, as, as an, when I was very first getting into IPA is that 
um, philosophers were not social researchers. And so in some ways, everything we're doing is we're kind of taking a view that has philosophical foundations and letting that breathe and live in ways of doing inquiry, ways of asking questions and framing investigations that do sit in kind of traditional disciplinary worlds of theoretical development, journal publications, and research grants and research projects. And so that's really, it's really adopting that mindset in the way I think of questions. Do Mm -hmm. I understand a person as an individual who's embedded in some salient part of the world around them? And how am I asking questions into that relationship? Um, as we continue to talk, I can give some examples of that, but that's, sure, that's sure. really a foundation. So one thing I'm, I'm seeing you as, here you are, this computer science guy coming into engineering education and then beginning to use something that does have these philosophical roots. And I think we would not expect a computer science guy to gravitate that way. That's just our stereotype of, you know, computer science people. (laughs) So could you tell us a bit, I think it's going to be a really interesting story of how did you come to use IPA? Absolutely. Um, So first I would probably make a nuanced but uh, distinction that I would I came from uh, the computer engineering pathway, which to the tribe of computer engineers. Okay, sorry. I made another huge... <laughs> not only can I not pronounce phenomenological... No, no, no. I felt the scorn of my tribe of computer engineers <laughs> if I didn't uh, make that uh, correction. But... Okay. But... Um, Uh, That's a really excellent um, question. And I think on some level, I was given a lot of assets by uh, foundations in computer and then later computer and electrical engineering to think of things as a complex system and to be comfortable with complexity. Um, and, And to just accept that things are complex, how do I live in that complexity and how do I do research in that complexity. Um, How I came to really understand IPA was, as I mentioned, I was very oriented to understand this broader question of identity. How do people live in their identities in the context of engineering, engineering education programs, and then later engineering careers? Um, And I was drawn to understand that question. And I had this kind of latent mindset that was already in this space of IPA. I was viewing identity as something that was very important in ways that were particular to people, to individual people. Um, And I noticed that in the identity literature, the ways we were talking about identity was either to make criticism, sociocultural criticisms of what we expect engineers to be, or we were talking about identity with this underlying goal of wanting people to become engineers and wanting there to be more engineers. 
um, so so that there could be more engineers or so that there could be diverse engineers all in the interest but everything was really oriented around the profession itself and I thought at the time that I began this research there was very little oriented around the actual people living out their very selves in the context of engineering so IPA I came to learn about it initially through a qualitative research class. That's where I got socialized to phenomenology. And and then I learned in that qualitative research class, the professor uh, was a, a proponent of interpretive ways of understanding, of doing phenomenological work. Um, not necessarily in IPA, he really related to the nursing tradition, um, which came along at the same time as IPA in the psychological world. But that got me into the literature and got me into understanding this is a method that is very palatable to me. As I, as I read the fundamental text by Jonathan Smith, um, Paul Flowers, and Michael Larkin, um, Interpretative Phenomenological Analysis, Theory, Method, and Research, as I read that, I said, this is me. This is where I fit. Um, so once I understood that, that really gave me a methodological tool to dive into identity. Um, and I would say that I was at a place that encouraged that exploration. Um, my advisors, Dr. Uh, Bill Oaks and Dr. Brent Jessick, were very um, excellent in encouraging that exploration. Um, at the time in my early part of my doctoral studies. And you actually had a chance to work with Jonathan, Jonathan Smith. Yes, yes, absolutely. So um, in part of that encouragement of exploration, uh, Bill, my advisor, uh, once I had passed my proposal, he said, this is great. You need to find a mentor. And I looked around and I didn't see a mentor. <laughs> and so... I emailed some local people. I brought in that out to like a tri-state area. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was having the common phenomenon that many people experience when communicating with academic people of getting no response. <laughs> and mm-hmm. finally, I found someone who would respond. And he said, I can't really support this, but you should just email Jonathan Smith himself. And to me, um, emailing a, a lead author of an originator of a method sounded incredibly daunting mm-hmm. but in spite of my insecurity I did reach out to him and he uh to my surprise um although it wouldn't be a surprise now now that I've been in academia longer but to my surprise at that time he replied and he con- he connected and engaged with the work for from his perspective this had really been done often in health psychology domains in other forms of applied psychology, but asking the questions around professional identity was something he saw as um, a novel but grounded way of using the method. So I uh, engaged in a mentoring relationship with him, um, and, and I very much am indebted to him in mentoring me through this method, which included lots of virtual time, but also some intensive time at the Birkbeck, uh, at Birkbeck College, where his appointment is in London as well. Um, and yeah, so that was, you went that there was for a 
couple of weeks? I went there. Yes, I went there for two very intense weeks that were couched before and after with lots of virtual meeting. Mm -hmm. But I will say that in-person experience was very, very critical to my internalizing and adopting the IPA mindset. That is just, that's fabulous. I, I know that feeling of approaching a legend and how yeah. incredibly scary <laughs> it is to do it. Um, but yes, if they say yes, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. So you and some of your fellow IPA researchers have actually gotten together to write about the tensions between the cultural practices of IPA and those in engineering education research. Can you tell us a bit about how you've managed that and what the tensions are? Yes. So I'm very indebted to Adam Kern, a fellow IPA researcher in engineering education and his leadership of pulling this article, which is now um, uh, available in qualitative research and the journal qualitative research in psychology. Um, That was an interesting process. We did, we engaged in a collaborative inquiry where we, asked critical questions among ourselves and documented this through a multi-month and really a multi-year process. Um, The way those tensions manifest, I've kind of alluded to one of them. Um, There is a sense of an orientation to things that live in the out there space in education research generally, but I would say that's very true in engineering education research as well. So doing research within individual experience, I might not be oriented to particularly develop an intervention that would keep people in engineering. I may be more oriented to just care about the individual themselves and their experience in the program. And so I might be motivated more towards psychological health and well-being. Mm-hmm. Those are things that are not really well explored. It's, it's emerging, but it's not really well explored in our community. We tend to focus on the health of the profession. So that's kind of one contrast is IPA is fairly indifferent to the health of the context even if I myself, as an IPA researcher in this context, do care, when I'm applying the method, I very much set that aside. And I would say that IPA is really does well in making what we call ideographic claims, and that are claims that develop um, knowledge with great sensitivity to the particular spaces where that knowledge lives. So for example, in my study on shame in the context of engineering, um, we are very oriented to understand the very complex patterns that individuals experience shame in the context of being an engineering student. In doing that, we're not going to find a magic answer that tries seeks to eradicate shame and on on the contrary we're just acknowledging that those experiences exist and it benefits us to really understand the patterns in which people live in those experience just one example of that is through ipa we can kind of tease out complex findings and that when people experience shame and this is a finding that is in our research 
they do respond to those in maladaptive ways that that do perpetuate the shame and cast it out to others and, and can contribute to creating cultures that are unwelcoming and are alienating. And yet these same individuals apply adaptive strategies and reparative strategies in which they do recover from the shame and bring health into the space. IPA brings out tension and in um, a very productive research community, there can kind of be some innate resistance to that tension um, where there's a sense of just tell me what I need to do, what right. I need to do in my classroom, what I, um, how I can have maximum impact. And I would really say that's kind of the third pattern that I would say is, is a tension between IPA research and the cultural practices in engineering education, as I've experienced them, um, is that IPA is really well suited to develop quiet and robust claims, not claims that you shout from the mountaintops. And, um, and I think that I've been really trained in two of those worlds where I do want to have transformative solutions that lead to interventions that I can shout from the mountaintops. And in my IPA understanding, I am oriented to just let the claims be where they are and let the theory grow and guide us into informed ways and long-term ways. So in that sense, I think there's tension. I will qualify that we, as the author team who wrote that paper, don't see those tensions as bad, but we see them as very fruitful and that we want them to continue to be there because that challenges us to grow. As myself, as an IPA researcher, I, I think I'm a better IPA researcher from being located in this research culture of engineering education than I would be if a lot of that was unchallenged by the community around me. And I would say that those who align more with a discipline-based education research orientation, I would say IPA challenges them in how they carry out their investigations. So we see that as very fruitful and that challenging as something that's welcome. And like in the shame study, we're not seeking to eradicate something because it's negative, but we're trying to understand things on their own terms. So you're seeing those tensions as opportunities to grow and be enriched versus a challenge to be overcome, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. Uh, the, the, um, that's part, Parker Palmer talks about living in the tension and not rushing to resolve uh, the tension. And, and that's really the way in which I see this is let's uh, – be stretched and grow, but let's not rush to resolve everything because there is going to be a trade-off if we try to conform one methodological tradition to a cultural practice of, of a discipline or vice versa. And, and because you're looking at the individual, the individual is not always going to be able to be molded into something, you know, generalizable that seems to be from kind of a STEM tradition often that one right. really is obsessed with generalizability and 
I would say it's a way of broadening the understanding of generalizability, um, mm-hmm. maybe. So instead of thinking breadth of applicability, um, breadth as in broad, not mm-hmm. uh, excelling and inhaling, but instead of thinking generalizability as here is a deduction we're going to make, is it broadly applicable? We're saying, we're asking the question, what is? And diving deep and gaining contextual insight. And so we're still oriented through generalizability, but that's more through a conversation of the individual and personal experience of that, that is located within the study, such as an individual experience of shame, individual experiences of identity, and carefully framing those in conversation with broader theoretical ways of understanding the same experience. Um, just a, I have a recent publication in Emerging Adulthood that teases this out in the identity of students who go into the workplace to where they have a sense of noticeable and stark identity commitment in ways that they perceive themselves to be more developed in their adulthood trajectory than others in relation to their profession as engineers. But in relation to non-professional domains, they take this more exploratory posture of saying, what am I? Who am I? I've not really had the chance to think about this because my education kept me very located and focused on this commitment to being an engineer. Mm -hmm. And IPA helps us bring out tense and complex findings that say, yes, both and are happening. And if we want to support individuals in engineering professions, we need to understand that things are happening beyond their professional identities. That's fascinating. So, James, I always ask people to end answering this question. What advice would you have for people who'd like to explore new approaches in their research? Sure. Uh, that's a wonderful question. I, I think the first piece of advice that I would offer is to, especially, and I'm, I'm really talking to people at the beginning of their academic career in the PhD or graduate student space here, really um, seek to develop yourself as an owner of the method, as a as someone who has a deep understanding on why they're doing what they're doing rather than just using it. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say having been an early career faculty in my fifth year as an assistant professor, that career does not really allow the bandwidth for that rich and intellectual exploration that a PhD degree does. So I would very much Uh, PhD students in particular to take ownership of the things they do rather than seeing themselves as appliers of people who apply things of something that is out there beyond them. That would really be be the first big piece of advice. Um, And I I think I learned through my reaching out to... um, Jonathan, um, in my 
journey to really be trained in IPA research. First, I, I think training is important, and that's really a part of my ongoing career as, as I train people in IPA. But I think that that reaching out is very, very key in forming those relationships. Um, and I would say be courageous to reach out to individuals who might have something to kind of help you in your growth. Um, but I would also say to recognize that you're also an individual in this space and what you're looking is to form a relationship where you're not just a benefactor, you're in a conversation and, and you're in growth with them. And so I, I would very much encourage being open and seeking deeper conversation and, and pushing yourself into domains that are not familiar, even if that means reaching out to, as we said, as you said earlier, the, the legends. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that's really a a key part because people are in this from a place of passion and the worst that can happen is a response of no. And Mm -hmm. that's the same outcome as if nothing is going into forging the relationship in the first place. Right. Well, James, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, You always are wonderful to speak to and you inspire me to keep expanding my own boundaries. And um, I hope that you inspire others to do that as well. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me. And I really appreciated getting the chance to talk today. You're very welcome. Research Briefs is produced by the School of Engineering Education at Purdue. Thank you to Patrick Vogt for composing our theme music. A transcript of this podcast can be found by Googling Purdue Engineering Education Podcast. And please check out my blog, ruthstreveler.wordpress.com.